Good morning, church. I am very, very glad that there is not a requirement that I clap while I try and speak because I was not able to do both at the same time when, uh, when that song was going on. Love the song, but uh, yeah, they don't work in tandem. So anybody else have that same kind of problem? Um, there was a little boy who was sitting down here with me, uh, and he was, he was clapping with the beat. His name is Gio, and he was with us at sports camp when we were there two weeks ago for serve. And th- this morning and last week, he has come to church all by himself because he got a Bible while he was at sports camp from Big Ben, and he wanted to find out what the river was all about. So a little guy sitting in a green shirt right down here all by himself here at church, and yet he's coming. And I just wanted to quick point that out because I don't know uh, if, if he'll have that many people that he'll be able to connect with here, but I want you to connect with him. I want you to seek out that little boy and, and say hi to him in a nice way. Don't overwhelm him. But he's here uh, because of some things that have gone on this summer with the interns. And as we transition to maybe some different spots, I would really just encourage you as a, as a family to make sure that he feels welcome here and that he knows that this is a place where he can come to learn more about God and get connected. So that's just my little plea before, before I begin. I am very, very grateful and excited uh, that you would let me stand up here and share with you from God's Word. And uh, so we're going to dive right into that. I'm going to be jumping around a little bit from three different passages. And so once you take your Bible out, why don't you just keep it on your lap? We're continuing in the, the series on the rules of the road, and we're actually coming to the close of that. If you haven't been here yet this summer at the river, uh, the church has been going week by week and taking a look at the Ten Commandments. And the reason why we have this theme is because we look at the Ten Commandments and we see them as guidance, as direction, as God's way of saying, this is the way to live. Don't do that. Don't do that, but focus instead on this. So rules to keep us on a road that, that keeps us healthy and keeps us in connection with God. So that's the series. Today I get the, priv- the privilege of doing the 10th commandment, the last one. And so uh, in a little bit we're going to look at Exodus 20 and look at that. But first, I'm going to put a few pictures up on the screen and I want you to see if you can recognize who the characters are. And then I'll see if you can find a way to compare them. Does everybody know who that is? Scar, yeah, a little bit, little bit older, maybe. I don't know if everybody's seen Lion King, but that's who that is. Next one, who, who's that? Cruella Deville, yeah. All right, so you got two so far. Next one, Jafar, yeah. This is the one from Aladdin. So those three characters. If I asked you, what do they have in common with each other? You may be able to think pretty quickly. Oh, Disney. Or they're villains, right? But what do those three characters have in common with the person of King David? If you're smart and you already know what the 10th commandment is, then you know that the 10th commandment says, do not covet. And each one of those characters, as well as King David, were all people who coveted something that was not theirs. 
In the Lion King, Scar covets the kingship that his brother Mufasa has and goes so far as to have him killed so that he can have the kingship himself. Cruella de Vil covets those little puppies' coats. She wants it for herself. And then you have Jafar who covets what the sultan has. He wants to rule over the kingdom. And then we come to King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who slayed giants, who shepherded sheep, who danced before the Lord with all his might. And yet, at a moment of weakness, his desires got the best of him. And he looked out and he saw a woman, and it led him into a lot of trouble. And we're going to read about that in just a little bit here. So all these characters coveting, and that's the commandment that we're going to look at. So please, if you could uh, open your Bibles to Exodus 20. I have down that the Pew Bible would get you to page 60 if you were looking for it. I'm going to be reading the first two verses, and then I'm going to jump to 17. Verse 17 is where the 10th commandment lies. And then we're going to jump ahead after that to 2 Samuel, where we'll read about David. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. Then jumping down to verse 17, our commandment for today. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. That's the commandment that God gives to people. He gives it to the Israelites because he realizes that their desires are all over the map. As people, they have things that they want. Maybe they see it in the Canaanites that are around them. Maybe they see it in their own tribes. But there's this desire that they have to to not trust God that he'll provide for them, but instead to go looking, looking around to try and see what maybe their neighbor has, and to set their eyes on that as something that could possibly satisfy. And that's trouble. That's a problem. And so God says, no. He says, don't do it. I've had enough of that kind of life. Instead, I want you to focus on something else. No to all of that. I want you to focus on something else, something better that I have for you, And so he gives them this commandment. Now I'm going to need you to jump with me to 2 Samuel 11. This is the story of David, the story of Bathsheba. I have that down on page 247. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. 
From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from uncleanness. And then she went back home. And the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Now this is a sad story in the Bible. King David, person that when it comes to biblical heroes we like, we think he does a lot of really amazing things, and yet here he gets himself into a lot of trouble. David has desires, but he doesn't trust that God is actually going to satisfy those desires. He doesn't know if that's something that would actually happen. And so he sets his eyes on his neighbor's life instead of focusing on his own. Now, when desires happen, when they kind of come up unbidden within us, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think that desire in itself is wrong. I think that we have desire kind of as a neutral thing. It, it pops up, and it's what we do with that desire that's important. I think that God actually gives desire as a positive, and that he encourages it, because we need that. Can you imagine what it would be like if we had a church full of people who had no desire? If everyone just sat in the pew and they were all hunched over, somewhat blah, bland, I think as a church, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, have desire, have passion, get excited about things, be energetic. That's a good thing within the church. And we're encouraged in the book of Philippians. It says, uh, Philippians 4 verse 8, whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely and admirable and beautiful, whatever's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We're encouraged to desire, to long, to want. But the problem that David experiences is that his desire even being able to see someone who's beautiful, that's, I think that that's okay. We can acknowledge that person is beautiful. But it's when our desire becomes misguided or it gets held on to for too long and it grows into something else, that's when it becomes rotten and it starts to have kind of a stink to it. Now, I am a bachelor. I know what it's like to hold on to something too long to have it go past its expiration date and for it to be rotten. My fridge is full of things that have done that. It's not good. And that's what coveting is. Coveting is when selfishly we need to have something that someone else has. We have to have it. It goes beyond just desire. And coveting is a gateway sin. It's not something so bad at the beginning. It starts out kind of small, but coveting is always tipping. It's 
tipping, it's falling, it's gradually about ready to tip over and dump into something else. It starts out with David just a desire, just him seeing something, but then he inquires. He wants to find out more, and then he sends for her. A little while later, after he's done this deed and he's gotten her pregnant, he invites Uriah, her husband, to his house and tries to get him drunk, tries to convince him that he should go home and spend time with his wife so that maybe David wouldn't have to take responsibility for getting her pregnant. But it doesn't work. And so David pushes it even farther and tells Joab, his commander, when the battle is fiercest, pull back and leave Uriah exposed. And it happens. And Uriah is killed. And David takes Bathsheba home to be his wife. So it started out just a desire, but it tips gradually and falls over into much worse things. That's what coveting is. Not only that, but it limits the sight that we have. You may think, oh, desire and coveting is, it it really opens me up to whatever because I want that and I want that and I want this. And so desire seems as if it's this thing that gives us such a broad view, but really it limits what we can see. In our relationship with God, I believe, I believe so much that our God is way more creative than what we are. I believe that he can surprise us and come up with things to give us, to put in our lives that we would never, ever, ever anticipate. And I believe that when we set our eyes and our desires on what someone else has, whether that's a talent that they have, or a possession, or maybe it's a relationship, when we do that, we actually limit ourselves to just what is visible, to what we can see. There are things that are not present in this group of people, that if I just set my eyes on this, I may miss out on the fact that God has something unseen, unheard of, new to give to me. And that's the danger of coveting. And this is why God commands us to keep our eyes on our own road. If there were a sign for this commandment, I think it would be a huge yellow one, maybe even neon green, and it would say, keep your eyes on your road with God. Don't look over to the side, because if you're driving in a car and you're cruising and you're so busy paying attention to the side street over here or what another car is going into, then you're not paying attention to what's in front of you and it's going to get bumpy. It could get bad. Keep your eyes on the road that God is walking with you. And sometimes when we have all these desires, that's hard because it doesn't really even seem like God's got us on a path. It seems like we're off, maybe off-road. But yet God commands us not to set our desires on the life of another. And our problem, us, today is similar to David's. I think it's the exact same because we too have these desires that they stir up within us. They happen and we wonder, can I trust God with this? 
this one doesn't seem very good. Can I trust that I could actually bring this to God, confess it to Him, or, or I feel vulnerable if I just admit the fact that I have this desire and that I really I would love that? Do we trust that our God is the kind who would satisfy? I want to tell you a story about a guy named Jim. Pretty simple story. Jim sat down in his easy chair, and he started looking through his magazine. And in the first few pages... Jim was just flipping. And he's usually a pretty healthy guy, considers himself pretty fit, but he got a couple pages more in and he saw ads for the Total Gym exercise equipment. And he began to kind of wonder, like, I don't really look like that guy. Uh, am I really all that fit? He flipped a few more pages and he got into the middle of the magazine and he saw the BMW with the new features all of its horsepower, sleek design. And he started wondering, oh man, all I have is a Mercury Sable. And I just use it to get the kids around and it's pretty reliable, but when I drive, I don't really have that much flash. I don't, I don't know if I'm really even a man when I drive my Mercury Sable. And towards the back pages in the magazine, he came across an ad for jewelry. And it spoke about how if you really want to communicate love, if you really want to let her know, you get her jewelry, diamonds, because those are forever. And he began to question the gift that he had already bought for his wife and wonder whether or not that was a good thing, whether or not it communicated the right message. After Jim finished, he realized he had one of two choices. Jim could either spend the next year of his life overhauling things and trying to get in line with what he should be doing, or he could stop his subscription to the magazine. It's kind of a cheesy story, I know, but it illustrates the point, the idea, that we live in a culture that is full of coveting, a culture that its economy is pushed forward by these ideas. Apple has sold millions and millions of iPhones just this last quarter. And when they sell all those iPhones, I think they're great devices. I like mine. It's a good thing. But I know that they didn't sell all of those because that was exactly what people needed. I know that it was probably because there's a buzz around the iPhone. It's the it thing to have, the in thing to have. And so our economy, whether it's the setup of our grocery lanes when you're walking up to buy your stuff, or whether it's commercials about cars. All of these things are driven, pushed, by this idea of coveting. Not only that, but coveting motivates our success. From the time when our children are very, very young, we are constantly pointing them to sports stars and movie stars and business tycoons, people who have really made it, done it well, and we point to them and we say, that's success. That's what you want to shoot for. That's what you want to be like. And not all of that is bad. But it can become dangerous when a child begins to get the message in their head that that's what they have to have in order to be loved. They need to be like those other people. And so coveting, which we foster and we stoke up inside of other people, it starts to cause trouble. Not only that, but coveting fuels our own sense of pride. I like to be coveted. I like to be the object of desire. 
sometimes it feels good. So if other people see me doing something kind of well and I, you know, I kind of flaunt it a little bit, then that feels good. But that's dangerous because that feeling is not going to satisfy. To be the object of someone else's desire isn't what we need and it causes envy within them. That's the danger of coveting. So with all of this going on, all of these problems in regards to our desires, how do we know whether or not they're healthy or unhealthy? How do we know whether or not they're good or whether they are very, very dangerous and they are tipping us towards something even worse? Well, two ideas. The first is that if you desire or admire something that is good, something that's positive, and you still have the freedom at the end of the day not to have it. So if you can see something in someone else's life and you think, wow, that's really, really great, but at the end of the day, you're okay. It's not the end of the world if you don't possess it. That's a, that's a healthy sign. That means that you're on the right road, especially if you can see someone else attain it and you can still give them the thumbs up. That shows that you're on the right path when it comes to desire. A second thing is if you desire something good and are willing to work for it in the way that you should, if you're willing to have integrity in your pursuit of it, because there are things that we desire that I think we should go for. I think we should put in the work and try and achieve. That's a positive thing. But if we get so caught up in this desire in this want, in this covet, that we get to a point where we are cutting corners and we don't care who we have to push down or what from our own life we have to jettison in order to keep up, that is when our desire is starting to have a stink to it. It's starting to go bad. It's past its expiration date and we need to make sure that we take care of that. But if we do it with integrity, it's okay. So, we have these problems with our desires. They lead us to look at other places, at other people. And God has an answer for that. God doesn't hold back. He doesn't step away. He doesn't check out when our desires begin to cause problems. Instead, God enters into that. His commandment comes and says, this is how you should do desire. And the Ten Commandments actually channel us they hedge us into a path that directs us towards Him. I read the beginning of the commandments, and there was a verse at the beginning that said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods but me. The commandments are framed and structured around the idea that God is the one that is giving them and that God is the one who satisfies. God is the one who the path all these signs, all these directions are ultimately leading to. Every single one of the commandments is about God. And God does an awesome thing. In addition to these commandments, He wires us with different things that actually enable us to avoid coveting. One of these is the idea of thankfulness. Philippians 4 verse 6 tells us to pray without ceasing, to by, pr uh, by prayer and petition to bring your request before God and to do so with thanksgiving. Hmm, why thanksgiving? Because 
Thanksgiving has this interesting power to it. It is very difficult for Thanksgiving and another type of emotion to exist within the same space. There's a really big guy here at church. His name is Big Ben Mulder. And what I was going to do is I was going to have Ben come down to the front and put on a jersey that said thankfulness, and then he was going to box me out. (laughs) He was going to show that no matter what, in that center lane, in that center part of our life, if thankfulness is there, the other things can't get in. I didn't do it because I wanted to be able to survive (laughs) the sermon. But that's what happens with thankfulness, is it actually pushes out those other things. When we say, God, I am thankful to you for this in my life, and when we are focused on the good things that are already there, then coveting doesn't have as much room. It may still be on the court, but it's not right in the paint. It's not in the center lane. A second thing that God has given to us is this idea of generosity. God has given and put, in, put so much in our lives that he invites us and encourages us to then give to others. Because coveting flows all of it into us. Coveting is a desire that says, I need me. I want this about myself. But generosity switches the flow. It says, no, I have, and so I am going to give. I'm going to share I'm going to actually take what is for me and I'm going to present it to someone else. And that's hard sometimes. If you've got $10 and you're going to give it to someone else to bless them, as you're about to do that, you might suddenly be thinking, oh, $10, I could buy a Chipotle burrito with that. Chipotle burritos are really good. But then when you give it, when you actually deliver it to someone else, then that action actually buys for you something that $10 never could. You have a different sense of satisfaction, not in the Chipotle burrito, but in a satisfaction in the fact that you were able to be generous to someone else. And that switches the flow from coveting to giving. And a third thing that God gives us that enables us to undermine coveting is the idea of celebration. As I said earlier, I am a bachelor. I have been single for quite a long time. And I've gone to a lot of weddings. Tons and tons and tons of roommates of mine have gotten married. And in that attending of weddings, I've gone with a lot of other single people. And we've sat around at tables or in pews. And we have watched our friends stand up in front and take rings and put them on each other's fingers as symbols of their love for one another. And it is very hard sometimes not to covet when you're sitting there. To watch them do that and to think to yourself, I want that. I would like to be up there. And that's not a wrong desire. That's not something that is off limits. But it just hasn't happened. And yet... In those weddings, as soon as they say, I do, and the pastor says, I present to you so-and-so, Mr. and Mrs., man, you got to put your hands together. you got to applaud. you got to make sure that that feeling that's there, that desire for that, that you celebrate. 
And later when they get out on the dance floor and they say, who's going to come out and dance? You've got to get out there and you've got to dance <laughs> the best you can because you've got to celebrate that good thing. You've got to admit it. And that doesn't mean that the desire is going to go away. Not one bit. Instead, what it does is it purifies that desire. It submits it to God and says, I want this. I really do. But I'm leaving it up to you, and I trust you with it. And it gets it to a point where it's not negative and it's not attacking on your neighbor anymore. So thankfulness, generosity, and celebrating, all three very good things that God has given us to undermine covening. But he's done even more than that. God has given us a grace that is so impressive that it actually paves a completely new way to him. You heard about David and you heard about Bathsheba. David messed up. He let his desires get the best of him and he ended up pursuing Bathsheba in a way that God did not approve. Shortly after David does this, Nathan, a prophet of God, comes and rebukes David. The commandment still stands. Do not covet. Don't do it. It's not good for you. David did it. God ended up getting him in trouble. But God's grace did not stop. God's grace instead abounds. It continues. And so, if you go to the book of Matthew and you read within the first chapter about the line of David, the lineage of him, you will find David's name in there, and it ultimately leads up to who? To Jesus Christ. But there's another name in that lineage, and it's the name of Bathsheba. Even though this was a desire that was out of control, a negative, bad thing. God, in his grace, actually allows for that to be something that still is truth and still is good. And so many, many, many years down the line after David's sin, Jesus is born. And I want to have you jump to the book of Philippians, to Philippians 2. There, at around verse 3, we'll, call, we'll find something that's called the Christ hymn. It's a description about who Jesus was, the way that he lived. This is Jesus, the son of David. Philippians 2, verse 3 to 11. This is the one who paves a new highway toward God. We'll start at verse 3. It says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but instead made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
So here we have Jesus, the Son of God, in the very nature, the same as God, and yet he does not covet his Father's position. He does not want that so bad that he has to have it. Not only that, but in the whole time that Jesus lived on earth, he didn't flaunt what he had. There are times when Jesus could have called down 10,000 angels to save him from the cross, or he could have done miracles that really brought attention to himself, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't flaunt it. And he doesn't do that because he is so busy coveting the very best thing, which is not position, but his relationship with his father. He is so caught up in his desire to be with God, to be obedient to his father, that he's like, why would I spend my time? Why would I waste it on anything else? Why would I set my desire on anything but this? This is so good. This is so fantastic. And so he follows a road that, though difficult, though marked with suffering, though he had to actually serve us, people who ended up hating him, turning on him, he does that because he knows that that's a road towards God where his desires will ultimately be met. And I'm sure that Jesus had desires. I'm sure that he wanted to be able to have these different things, and yet he submits them to God and says, this is where I will have my satisfaction in God above. And God reveals in this not only a path that we can follow, but he also reveals that the very best thing for us to covet, the thing for us to set our desires on, is relationship with him. And that doesn't mean that miraculously, suddenly, all of the other things that we want in life will be met, will be achieved. I've loved God for a long time, and I still am not married. <laughs> and that's okay. Because when you set your desire on God, it may not fill in everything that you want, but it does set you in the right direction. Walking a path that was paved by the activity of Jesus Christ as the servant who trusted that his God is someone who will satisfy desire. That's our Jesus. That's our God. Commanding us and channeling us towards good things, ultimately towards himself. Will you pray with me? Dear God, it is hard for us to always trust you with our desires. Sometimes we doubt that life in your path will really satisfy. And so we start looking around at our neighbors to have our needs met. We're sorry for this, God. But we thank you that in Jesus you paved a new road. You showed that we can trust you. And now we pray, God, that you would stir up our desire and our affection for you in such a way that we can't help but run and sprint down a path towards you and constantly submit our desires to you to satisfy. This is our prayer. Amen.